A literal fire starts in a confessional, a vision of angels, and the good news about sex and marriage. John Soul is on Spirit Inspire right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Hello and welcome to Spirit Inspire. I'm your host today, Isaac Fox, joined with the usual suspects, my co-hosts, Brian Kane, John Soul, and Eric Huff. On today's episode, we'll be continuing part of a little group of episodes we've done in which we take turns interviewing one another to give each member of Spirit Inspire the opportunity to share with you our stories of conversion, reversion, or in whatever other way God has chosen to work in our lives to bring us to this point in our Catholic faith. And we hope you will find these stories interesting and uplifting. And today it is my distinct honor and pleasure to have the opportunity to interview my fellow co-host, the magnificent and marvelous Mr. John Soule. John, how are you today? I'm very good, Isaac. Thank you. Good. Great to be here. Great to have the opportunity to chat with you a little bit. I would like at the beginning though, before we get into the interview, to briefly pause and observe something that really has stood out to me. And that is this, this is interesting. If I were to look at my entire life as sort of a chart of events, it would turn out that the number of times in which I have worn a vest greatly exceed the number of times that I have worn a jacket, sports coat, or blazer. Except since we started doing Spirit Inspire every episode until today, I have worn the jacket. And everybody, everybody is sitting on the edge of their seats wondering where this is going. But today is the first day for those watching that I've worn the vest. And John, who I'm interviewing, is also wearing a vest. Wow, look at right? that. So interviewer and interviewee both wearing vests. You, you and I mentioned this. You're, you're invested in the Oh my. I bet you know, that's where he was going. Eric, that's I don't exactly know if I want to be a guest anymore. I think I'll be leaving now. <laughs> the setup for my pun was terrible, but then you stole even that from me. <laughs> I'm sorry. He was going to make that joke. I thought you were going to say that you made the choice of wearing the vest in honor of John Hall, who always wears vests. I was going to try to deadpan as well as, I, a... as well as I could. Uh, that guys, this you has and been I both... my life in college and back into high school. I was the guy who wore vests yeah. and things like this. Me too, this, so usually. It's yeah, just all my life. I'm proud to say I was never the guy who wears vests, uh, but I am happy to be here today. This is a pretty normy vest for John, though. I mean, what don't you have like an American flag vest? Or you can like, even say cheap. What's not yet? yet. That's oh. good. That's a good what's plan. The, what's the? Oh, it's just more like a fishing vest or something. It like, was. I considered it a pilgrim's vest. Uh -huh. I took it to World Youth Day a few other countries, and it you know, it was worn. But how well, many how many pockets did they have? About. Five and how, ten? And 20? how many pounds of things did you oh tend to carry <laughs> in it? I have many friends who will uh, remind me of those exploits and adventures. So. Was this like a Michael J. Fox um, Back to the Future type It has of vest? been put to rest. Let's just say that. The vest is not that puffy. Imagine more like a like a fisherman like okay. tackle vest where it's got like a hundred pockets, but instead of like flies and lures and baits, it's got like I do uh, not know if this particular topic will warrant a, a very vested interest from our audience. Okay. Well, I think given the fact that Eric sort of ruined my intro, you need to go stand in the vestibule. Oh, God. All right. 
for more quality content. a good run. <laughs> Thanks for watching Spirit Inspired. For more quality yeah. content and dad We're jokes, please ourselves. visit us at www.dadjokes.org. Dad no, exactly. okay. All right. All right. So anyway, now that we've derailed this interview in the first two minutes, Welcome back, John. Hey. Yeah. Um, before we talk about your life story, your childhood, and all those things, I thought maybe you could share with all of us um, what you do now, your vocation, your passion. Where is John Soul at in life right now besides co-hosting this awesome podcast? Sure. Uh, I will say, to start with, I feel very much at peace. Now, there's this deep sense of peace and joy that uh, I've, I've wanted, longed for, and I'm not saying I've arrived. I just feel it more and more than I perhaps ever have in my life. Uh, I now serve as the Director of Discipleship for Family Renewal Project, the local non-profit apostolate for Theology of the Body, which is a, an incredible gift in my life. Uh, discipleship and evangelization go hand in hand in my mind. You know, discipleship is more the deeper side of things. It's based on, you know, deep relationships, one-on-one -on -one encounters, small groups, uh, really walking with people uh, to help them understand uh, the depth of their faith, their humanity, what it means to live a lifestyle of purpose and happiness. And that comes in the form of many different things. So Family Renewal Project offers courses and classes. Uh, we, you know, God willing, could one day develop an institute of higher learning, uh, deeper immersion, immersive type uh, experiences, things like that. But uh, I've always been a youth minister at heart, you know, working with young people, working with sure. people who are young at heart. Really what I mean is people who are open. Right open and receptive. I've met many young people who act older and more stubborn and hard-hearted than you know, some of the oldest people I've met. In fact, some of the oldest people I've met have been the wisest, most warm, inviting, and youthful kind of people I've ever known. So Pope Francis talked a lot about that in Fratelli Tutti, that uh, we shouldn't idolize youth, right. that a lot, a lot of people do idolize youth, uh, yet we should attempt to be young at heart and that's kind of what he was referring to yeah i'd say it's a, a willing and teachable spirit as mm -hmm. my good friend gary burry has said unless was, you become like a little child yes etc yeah yes it's a it's docility you know this willingness to be taught is really just saying do we have an open heart yeah. do we long to know more than whatever degree or experience we think we have no matter how smart we are I mean, no matter how much certification I might have in this or that, at the end of the day, I am always a child before God. Yeah. And that is, I think, my primary vocation and state of life right now. But on top of that, and perhaps grounded because of that, uh, comes my marriage with my wife, Crystal, and who has been an incredible blessing in my life. Uh, she truly has given me the greatest chance at being in heaven that I could have ever hoped for. And uh, and I, I just would not be here without her and all of the family who surround her in my life. And uh, well, I just- We're all very good. grateful to her. Yeah. And speaking of certifications, and you're talking about uh, Family Renewal Project. Sure. Um, you also received a certification recently that relates to that, correct? 
Yes, yes, I did. Uh, back in March, it was officially awarded, but I was given the certificate officially uh, recently, and it was uh, for the Theology of the Body Institute. You know, this is certification uh, uh, from Christopher West, uh, Bill Donahue, many of the teachers up there that have done incredible work. Uh, they do 30-hour immersion courses, and I was able to attend eight different courses, taking uh, comprehensive exams on those uh, courses that are all about head and heart immersion. How do we right. not just stimulate the inner intellect, but really delve into the depth of our being. So past wounds, difficulties and pains, but also many of our joys and fond memories to help us integrate this truth in a way that helps it uh, help people uh, understand it in a way that's loving, inviting and inspiring. Right. And uh, of course, I had to read the theology of the body audiences of John Paul II, write papers on them. Short little book, uh, right? And it, right, short. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine said it's like wading through concrete. So yeah. it's like it, very intense. And then of course, do a, an actual practicum presentation. So based on all my courses and experience to now teach to that. Right. Uh, and my hope is to continue. That's awesome. And Eric and I got to attend that that's right. Presentation. That's right. And it was it was fantastic. It, John's a, a very talented presenter, and he probably won't say this himself. So I'll say it. As far as we know, the only person in Louisville uh, with this certification. So it's really a special honor um, and and a a privileged role I think that you have to bring sort of Christopher West's um, work on JP 2s theology of the body to Louisville uh, and to kind of you know unveil it. Uh, here in the city. I will say it truly is a gift because it was never something that I could have afforded on my own. So when I say it's a gift to serve other people, to be of service to anyone I meet, it stems from the fact that even my certification itself was a gift. Even my ability to attend one course was a gift. Uh, I had just started working in teaching in the schools. We were teaching chastity and healthy relationships, dating, boundaries, things like that. And I was talking to a friend of mine who had been to one of the courses. And I had wanted to go to the Theology of the Body Institute probably since I was 16, 17 years old when I first heard about it, but I didn't have 1200 bucks and you know a, car, a driver's license to attend this course, right? And so I just kind of said, well, one day. Well, I was talking to my friend about this years later and because she had been to the course, I knew that you know, maybe it was possible that I could find some money some way. Um, and so she said goodbye and another lady walked in and told me she'd always wanted to meet me. And I'm like, who is this lady? She was a friend of a friend of my mom's. And I thought, okay, cool. So maybe she's gonna give me like gas cards or you know, restaurant gift right. cards because she was offering to help me out financially. Sure. And she said, no, John, what's something you've always wanted to do? And I was like, well, uh, there's this awesome institute, and I only brought it up because I had literally 10 seconds before been talking to this other lady about this. Yeah. And she said, well, I'm on the board of directors here. I'd love to help you out. I'd love you to write up a proposal and see what we can do. So I wrote up a proposal of all eight courses, how much each cost, plus transportation, and she approved all of it. It was a thirteen dollars <laughs> to $14,000 investment. Uh, and she effectively huge. changed my life yeah. in that very moment. Uh, you want to talk about the mountain uh, yeah. top experience. So that is that's huge. <laughs> that is a great story. Well, John, one of the things that I'm picking up here is 
between family renewal project, theology of the body, and all of this, it seems that family and theology of the body are figure very, very large in yes. your story. So maybe, if you don't mind, let's kind of go back to the beginning and, and see how that came to play out in your life. And as I was preparing for today, I was thinking about the fact that the four of us all have a little bit of a different story. Uh, two of us, Eric and myself, are converts. Uh, Brian is a revert. Um, and you, I think, are the only member that was born and remained a Catholic, you know, day one up until now. Somehow. So, yeah, <laughs> miracles of grace, yes. I'm assuming. Um, so maybe you could speak to that. What role did faith play in your early childhood, in your family? Were your family very, you know, active in the faith? Was it more of a nominal Catholic upbringing? Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about those early days and the role of faith. Sure. I think a lot of my faith came directly from my immediate family in the form of my mom, my dad, uh, my brother and my sister, and also my grandma, you know, my dad's mom. Uh, she was particularly involved in my life to the point where, in fact, the very day that I got the phone call that I was receiving full funding to the TLB Institute, three hours later, we found out my grandma had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Mm and she was gone 30 days later. It was so fast we couldn't even tell people. And uh, a month after her death and burial, uh, we, I, I was attending my first course at the Theology of the Body Institute. So I have to couch this, this synthesis of healing, I guess, at least maybe this is part one. There's so much more than <laughs> we could possibly do in a single episode of time. But, um, but I have to couch that in the context of going to the Theology of the Body Institute was really immersing myself in the beautiful language of John Paul II, John Paul II, his thought on what it means to be human and how that plays into our experience, our personal lived experience and our families and our friends right. on a daily basis. And by immersing myself, it actually helped me connect the dots of my past. To, so that I could actually literally discover my story yeah. so that I could even be capable of sharing it, you know? Um, and why I say this is because my grandma played such an intense role uh, early on because um, when I was a kid, she was the director of religious education in my parish. Uh, what was your parish? St. Luke, uh, okay. St. Luke Catholic Church in Okalona, a very small parish, uh, neighborhood based. And I remember she had been, uh, principal at Guardian Angels there on uh, uh, Preston Highway by the airport. Sure. And she moved down there uh, closer to home uh, when she transitioned. And from there I became, or my parents started going to church a lot more often. And uh, from there, <laughs> our parish started going through a lot. Um, in 1993, the year my grandma started as uh, DRE, the school actually closed. And that was, you know, a wound, a pain yeah. for that parish. Mm -hmm. uh, we had just received a new pastor at that time, at that same time. And so they were kind of reevaluating the mission of the parish, the purpose uh, of what God, why would God allow this to happen? And I think that can be related to many of uh, what many places uh, might be feeling uh, in the culture today. But back then it was a fresh wound, you know? And right. so by 90, 1995, the archdiocese was actually uh, going through a lot of uh, organizational things. And they slated about six or seven parishes to close at that time. And St. Luke was one of them. And so the parishioners, 
literally petitioned the neighborhood, had a huge archdiocesan hearing. And again, this is stuff that I absorbed as a kid. Right. You know, I, I wasn't involved at, at this time. Three, four, five years old. Okay, the early memories. And I very, very vaguely remember some of the the intense emotions. I don't really remember what people said or did. I wasn't at anything, obviously, but I remember the emotion about it, the intense yeah. passion people had. Um, and the big slogan back then was unity in the community, right? This desire to band together through tough times. Well, we were actually given approval to remain open and that I considered a miracle uh, in many ways, especially when so many others closed. Right. Shortly after that, a year and a half later, the parish burned down. Wow. A uh, fire actually started in the confessional in the middle of the night, January 17th, 1997. I'll so never forget the date. lightning in the confessional. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think of the fire starting in a confessional yes, is very spiritually symbolic. Yeah, yeah there's a powerful. lot to be said there, I think. Right. But the parish essentially lost everything. Wow. You know, and it was a devastating experience. And... Uh, witnessing and looking at my parish home as reduced to nothing but ashes, dust, and just the first communion pictures, the Eucharist was preserved, the old wooden cross was still there. So like the actual Eucharist, you mean like in the tabernacle? Yes, the Eucharist was, was still preserved, preserved in the tabernacle. It's, it's profound, even though the pedestal the tabernacle sat on was gone. You know, so it's uh, spiritually symbolic of the strength of the faith, that the faith is not just a building, yeah. but it's the people. It's the, the encounter with Christ. So unity in the community, I think, over those years started to give way to unity in the Eucharist because that's all we had left. Right. You know, the Eucharist and each other. And so Mass was celebrated on the grounds of the old church. Uh, and the Knights of Columbus Rental Hall, our sister parish, St. Rita, actually allowed us to use during that time. And again, I'm seven, eight, nine, ten years old now, absorbing all of this just deep sense of belonging, sense of community. Uh, and I felt uh, a great camaraderie with my parents because they were directly involved. My mom at this time had a powerful conversion and uh, ended up. Uh, getting involved in a Catholic rock band. It was a spinoff to our choir. I know it sounds crazy to say that. <laughs> My mom was in a Catholic rock band, everyone. It was great. Oldest rockers. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, terrible, terrible. Um, but uh, my, uh, my aunt joined soon after that, so it became yeah. very fa familial. Many other parishioners. Join, join the parish or the rock join band? Join the rock band, actually. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, but they've always been part of the parish. Um, but it was through that that my mom and dad uh, actually got married in the church at that mm -hmm. time. So they, they had not been married in the church yeah, they, prior. Right. They prior had eloped in 1987. Gotcha. Um, and after they uh, got through some annulment things, uh, they ended up getting married in the church gotcha. wow, when I was huge. eight years old. And so I was a ring bearer at my parents' wedding. But here's that's the coolest cool. part. <laughs> I know. That's my brother cool. was the ring bearer at my uncle and aunt's wedding because they got married on the same day at the same ceremony at St. Luke on the grounds of the old church. So it was an outdoor Catholic double wedding. <laughs> Crazy. And this is what I absorbed as a kid, right? Uh, and by So that was in 99, and a year later, St. Luke actually rebuilt. And so that was kind of the, the, the community that surrounded my family and a lot of uh, the deep sense of, of, of hope that I gained from that. Yeah. Um, and again, there's so much to, to share and I could, could go on and on, but I didn't want to just 
talk the whole time about <laughs> everything. Because again, there's too much to share in yeah. the story. One thing that kind of popped into my mind when you were talking um, about St. Luke's burning down and how nothing was left but the Eucharist and how in a sort of tragic situation, people banded together and, and found what was sort of the, the basis of their faith. Reminds me to a much lesser extent and uh, probably all of you know this, but two years ago at the, the parish I attend, uh, St. Martin of Tours, there, which is open 24 hours, you probably all heard the story of a person in the neighborhood who I believe had had some issues with drug addiction and so forth, it sort of cleaned up and then apparently went, went off, fell off the wagon, uh, just sort of forcing his way into the front doors one night and attacked the high altar and did, I think, $60,000, $70,000 worth of damage. And St. Martin's is open 24-7. And so that, through that night and the following day is I think the only time they've actually shut the church down in like 20 years. And I, it took quite a bit of time for things to be fixed, uh, you know, candlesticks to be mended, you know, statues to be replaced. And so St. Martin's here in town is one of the really beautiful churches. It's very ornate, it's very old school. And it, was, it looked a bit more bare for a while. And I've always had a great appreciation for the visual beauty of the church, but it occurred to me as I began to go back to mass there and things are a little more plain, that there is something to be said for that as well, because you can look at times in history when maybe under persecution, when people didn't, couldn't go into the beautiful cathedrals to celebrate mass, or you look at monasteries where maybe there's just a very simple plain wooden chapel. Yeah. And while the art and the beauty is designed to lift us up to God, and I think is good for that reason, right. it is sometimes good to remember when other things are stripped away, what really is at the root. Like we are here just for the Eucharist. Like that is the point of why we're here. So that just that definitely resonated with me when you were describing a more extreme situation. The entire church burnt down and all that is left is you know, outdoor mass. And, well, and, that, and that's why I think Christ came, you know, not to abolish the old law, but to fulfill it, to help us understand why do we gather bodily in worship at mass in a physical building? It's not to get tear down the temple and destroy it where it's irrelevant. It's to help us transform the temple so that right. we understand the ultimate temple when everything else is stripped, when we, when we don't even have a building, Right. The ultimate temple is our body, our yeah. bodily presence in communion, not just community. Because if it's just community, I think we have a tendency to worship one another or worship a sense yeah. of feelings and emotion and excitement. And, mm. and it can become unhealthy. But when you don't have any of that, you really do have to rely on your faith in God and to trust that God has put the right people in your life to communicate his love, his faithfulness, his spirit of endurance and fortitude that I firmly believe has become the very identity of my parish. And in community versus communion, and I think that's really profound because when you think of communion, we're going to think of communion in terms also of receiving the Eucharist. Yes. So when you're saying the temple is our bodily presence, but it has to be in communion, that's because we actually become part of the body of Christ. That's the fundamental temple. Yes. And Jesus says this himself when he, when he talks to uh, the disciples, and I think the Pharisees, about if you tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. It's a Gospel of John, I think. And John's little comment there is he was speaking of the temple of his body. So the Old Testament temple 
If you want to understand all the interesting, peculiar things about the temple, the temple is the body of Christ. And then you look further and discover the body of Christ is everyone who is joined to Christ as well. Mm. So I think that's a good point that it's not just community, but communion. If we really are the body of Christ, it is the receiving of the Eucharist that actually makes us truly the body of Christ. Yes. This slogan so. needs to change from unity in the community to union in the communion. <laughs> oh I gosh. like it. I like I it. On that like, note. I kind of like unity in the Eucharist, healing in the family. Yeah. That's where I kind That's of awesome. go. But I like your <laughs> attempt at a pun. Again, I, 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 well, I, I was, no, I was, I was Half serious, half, half, half chest. I know what you mean. But I also appreciate that John already had another slogan in mind to replace it. Um, He's like, that's great, but but we've already decided on this. I had one more reflection on the the fire starting in the confessional. And I I thought uh, there's another theological truth there of like, it's in the confessional where we go to die to ourselves and, and, everything is meant to be burnt away in some way except for christ yeah uh, like if if we're doing confession right all those other things uh are being being purged that's awesome and uh and it is just christ left because it's his mercy and it's yeah. a fire of mercy a real fire that burns in our hearts that helps not just that destroy was the mass reading our identity yesterday. what that was the mass reading yesterday he said i came to enkindle yeah. a fire on on the earth yes how i wish it was already blazing yeah <laughs> on, to your point and just one little comment i know we're uh, due for a break here but that reminded me of something, and that is the story of Daniel and his three friends, right? Or <laughs> Shadrach, the, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego yeah. Right. Mm, the best thrown, trio in the Bible. They're three. Arguably. Yeah. <laughs> the best name, named trio. It in is the Bible. true. <laughs> so the, those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the fiery furnace to be destroyed, right? You know, the king thinks that that is going to kill and destroy them, and they're tied up. And then he looks in the furnace, and if you, I'm sure, you know, we all remember the passage. He sees a fourth person there. He mm-hmm. said one, you know, which obviously is a representation of of Christ. So Christ is with them in this blaze. But what is interesting is when they come out, they're unharmed, but they are not unchanged. One thing changed. Remember what it was? One thing is different. I can't remember. Their bonds were burnt away. Mm. So they didn't die. Who they were didn't die, but they were actually freed yes. by being in the fire with Christ. Uh, so there, I think it says there was like no smell upon their garments and their bonds were burnt away roughly. Mm-hmm. So um, I've always been really struck by that, that that moment of persecution and trial did not destroy, but actually freed them to something greater. So, Amen. Well, on that note, let's take a very short break and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with more about the life history of John Soul. Thanks for watching. <laughs> Hey everyone, this week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at familyrenewalproject.com. Welcome back to Spirit Inspire. We've been talking today with John Soule. He's been telling us a little bit about his life story and just shared with us a really amazing and powerful story of some of his early experiences with his family and his parish of St. Luke's. So welcome back, John. Thank you. Maybe we can continue the story a little bit more. I was kind of wondering, you were talking about the importance of your family and you spoke of your mom having a deepening conversion. 
What about outside of church in your family? Was there family prayer? How did the faith figure into your, your family setting? Good question. Um, so early on, there was uh, not necessarily a strong sense of faith, I guess. Now, I didn't necessarily pick up on the, a lot of that sure. because when I was seven years old, my grandpa, my mom's dad, passed away. Okay. Uh, and that, I think, was the main catalyst that really deepened her conversion to her Catholic faith. Gotcha. Uh, but the- How Christ- does that, what's the timeline of, of father passing away, your grandpa, and, um, and the rock band? Oh, so that, and that's kind of what I was getting at. So okay, sorry. my mom was in the rock band from 95, 96, and 97 and my grandpa died in 98. Okay. So she was really into her faith in many ways, but it was until after grandpa died that it really started to change. Mm. So her music got more intense uh, <laughs> in more ways. Solos. It, it was It was really processing grief yeah. Uh, yeah. for the whole family. I mean, yeah. she did such a gift for us and maybe she wouldn't consider it or have called it a grace at the time because again it was grief but right. the music the the melody the lyrics they have burrowed deeply into my very soul no pun intended <laughs> right right um but i remember one particular song was uh what did it mean when the angels sang sing and uh, when my mom go ahead and sing it uh what did it mean the night the angels came? What did it mean when they came? They were sta- uh, um, they were standing over us. Love reflected on their face. Um, yes. And it was it was just a beautiful like mystical yeah. heavenly song, you know. And it was it came from a story when my mom was a little girl. She says she had this vision of two angels that hovered over her and my aunt. Hmm. And she just remembered they were childlike in appearance and they they didn't really say anything. It was just this peaceful presence of protection. And wouldn't you know it, 25, 30 years later, she finds herself getting married on the same day as her sister to two brothers, my dad and his brother. (laughs) on the Feast of the Guardian Angels. Wow. Oh, wow. And my grandma, their dad, or their mom, was the principal of Guardian Angels at that time. <laughs> Pure coincidence, I'm Only sure, right? God can do that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And so the, and this was a year after my grandpa, my mom's dad died. And so there's this deep connection I feel like I have toward my grandma, uh, my grandma Fran, my dad's mom and my grandpa elder, my mom's dad, because they were like, they were the rock of faith, I think in our family. They were faithful, they were loving, they were spiritual, they were prayerful. Um, My grandpa, I think had his rosary in his hands when he died, uh, because he was having a hard time breathing. He died from emphysema. And so he got up in the middle of the night, they found him in his favorite chair holding his rosary. I, I feel like music, probably plays a key role in you keeping your faith. I mean, how powerful for those lyrics to be repeating in your head and to know that it's connected to this mystical experience that your mom had. I mean, you know, every time you sing that song, I'm sure you think about the way God works and all this providence, Um, you know, it, it makes me think, you know, when we were at Mass today, so we're recording on the Feast of Our Lady of the Assumption, 
And um, we were at Mass today at St. Margaret Mary. That's when the first episode aired, Brian. What are you talking about? <laughs> the secret's out. <laughs> oh, no, These aren't okay. live. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll have live streaming eventually, yeah. occasionally. You know, it's good. So we, we were at St. Margaret Mary. Well, the... Um, I think it was the closing hymn was Hail Holy Queen Enthroned Above, which is one of the songs we sing for night prayer sometimes for our family. So our kids actually know it and love to sing it at the top of their lungs. In fact, they did a re <laughs> rendition during, we had karaoke at the 4th of July party. Yes. Um, and so like, we, everybody's singing and you just hear Gus and Zaley and, and their friend Ellie uh, uh, just screaming. <laughs> His kids are so adorable. I, uh, um, and so uh, and I, it just, it makes me think that that maybe there we're on the right track because uh, that that music talking about you know bodies and and how deeply uh, human it is to be embodied and to do things with our body that you know the the classic phrase is he who sings well prays twice. Yes. I once saw a coming home interview with Marcus Grodi, and he said, well, he who sings prays twice. Yeah. And the musician he was interviewing said, well, the actual quote is, he who sings well prays <laughs> twice. <laughs> and, um, I thought that was very funny. That was anyway, that's a little sidebar, but, um, but that was something that Father John Erdman, a priest here in town, had told me. He said, incorporate song into your family prayer. Hmm. Um, and this was a couple years ago, and we've tried that's to do good. that ever yeah. since. Because kids love singing. Exactly. And they're not going to be feeling like bored sitting yep. around, you know, and it gives something also music sticks in your memory more than, than yeah. words. Yes. So or words that rhyme stick in your in your memory more than don't. Um, I'm thinking of earlier this week, uh, we had a Vespers uh, mm -hmm. guys night <laughs> and uh, I think John and John was leading it and there's kind of impromptu singing um, <laughs> there so also. And it was fabulous. Uh, Brian, I want to ask you a question real quick. <laughs> okay, um, since I'm the one being interviewed. When you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, John, you're going to do our own show. So, yeah, yeah. When you asked John about that song, um, I don't remember how that was the setup was, but you started to lead towards it more. You had him sing the song. Did you know that story before today uh, with the Guardian Angels? Had you heard that before? I think so. I didn't remember it. All right. It was but... it was brand new to me. So I, I was... Uh, I was so I've, I, I've had... I was a youth minister before my current job. And so I've actually hired John before to speak to my youth group and tell oh, his yeah. story. That's right. uh, and then I've, I've heard it in a, in a couple other contexts as well. I didn't specifically remember that story but what i did remember was that your mom was in a catholic rock band and that it played a key part in your childhood and i knew that you knew those songs and i knew it wouldn't be too much putting you on the spot uh given that you're a showman uh you know uh and your favorite movie is the greatest showman i knew you were gonna <laughs> my goodness. that you would be all right my uh, wife and i had that as the theme of our wedding right. the greatest showman <laughs> nice. and of course it was great. if you've watched the movie he definitely has a big humility check uh -huh. in that movie so <laughs> Oh, thank you, Brian, for reminding me no. that my head has to be popped soon. So. No, bro. <laughs> no, it's good. Just make sure you fit through the door on the right. Way. Right. Get ready. Get ready for that moment. All right. So uh, back in the beginning, we were talking about your work with FRP sure. and theology of the body, and then as we've been talking about your childhood and family, how old are you at this point in your story? Um, at that point, yeah. When my grandpa died, I was seven, and the okay. music. My mom started writing. You know, again 
changed and they eventually the band she was in broke up it was hand to hand and then it transitioned to the open window because my dad said to her in the midst of grief and the breakup of the band and all that he said well when god closes a door he opens a window <laughs> and that became the name of the band That's and awesome. it and it continued until 20, uh, 2001 2002 okay. And so here I was 11, 12 years old, and my mom was still singing. Uh, in fact, my dad, because of her music, got involved in WLCR, the Catholic mm -hmm. radio station in town. Mm -hmm. And he started promoting independent Catholic recording artists um, called, and he called his show, uh, it was once, uh, once a week on Sundays, he called it Sunday Sounds. And uh, I remember being a kid and he recorded a spot of me, my brother and my sister saying into the microphone he had, uh, you're listening to our daddy on Sunday sounds. <laughs> and I'm sure that my dad still has it recording somewhere, but he, he taught me a lot of, you know, the world of uh, media on some, you know, elementary yeah. level. But he also preserved music in my family because at a certain point my mom kind of, you know, moved out of the music writing and performing kind of phase and sure. became a, a lot more contemplative. You know, I think she, uh, her conversion was uh, steadying out, not that it was dying out in any way. I mean, she's one of the most faithful, holy women I've Possibly ever known. Possibly deepening. Right, deepening, if anything. Yeah. Um, but it became uh, a transitional time in our life because I think her mom died that same year in 2002. And I think that really uh, definitely moved things in one direction. My sister had joined the Marine Corps at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, she joined in 2000 because uh, she's about eight or nine years older than I am. Okay. And so when we were, you know, absorbing the music and the band practice and and all the exciting things that would take place, my sister was 16, 17, 18 years old. She would babysit us, and you know, yeah. it kind of got old for her, and she was ready to move on and find her way. And so she joined the Marine Corps. Uh, and she actually ended up getting married uh, about a year after that in 2002, three area, uh, right around the time my grandma died. And my brother and I were getting ready to graduate uh, grade school and move on to high school. Right. Uh, my brother and I are two years apart, so I'm the oldest. Um, and uh, he and I kind of grew up together. Uh, my sister was out of town during that time in our life, but um, but again, music played a theme. It was just a little bit different. Uh, and I will say this part of the story, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a smaller detail on some level, but it's quite an amazing uh, part of this to the point where I'm actually writing a book uh, that I would hope to get published one day called Love, Larry. In fact, Larry Love was the director of contemporary music here at the Cathedral of the Assumption. Okay. And because of the Catholic rock band, my mom had to get this player piano in our house. And when I was seven, eight years old, I started playing Fur Elise on one hand because my sister taught me. And my dad said, who do I know that could give lessons? And Larry Love's name came up and I started lessons with him when I was nine. And I kept going until I was about 12. Um, so that was 2002. So the same year my mom stopped playing music, I had gotten kind of lazy with practices, um, but Larry stayed in my life years later. Um, but he's a, he's a great a great man, a uh, great influence in my life because he taught me the, the love for music in a different way, in a way that was more disciplined. I think my family taught me the spontaneity right. of music.
and the, the importance of music on some level. Yeah. Um, again, there's there's so much to, that you could speak to just on music and its influence in my life, but um, but there's so much uh, so much that God has done. So we're kind of in middle school. So like, what's your faith like at this point? Do you have a prayer life? Do you <laughs> Um, you know, obviously you're surrounded by Catholicism. Are you kind of practicing on your own at all in any conscious way? That's a good good thought because while I was absorbing it and it was around me, it was more informational and not as transformational at this point because it, I, I just wasn't there yet, I guess. I remember going to confession. And do you know you speak in catchphrases? <laughs> it was informational, not transformational. I do speak in catchphrases. <laughs> I admit that, yes. The difference between ordinary and extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I remember, yes, I do. I remember uh, when I think some of the early days of the conversion experience, my mom uh, and dad would take us to confession, but it was like, man, my brother and I didn't want to go. Right. It was awkward, uncomfortable. We would fight. Um, and there would be times where we just wouldn't, you know, and I don't know if my dad would or not, but, you know, it was more like my mom's conversion led to a lot of my dad's conversion and vice versa, all kind of at the same time. Uh, my mom was watching EWTN so much that I couldn't watch Nickelodeon because she was recording <laughs> Jeff Cavins and yeah. you know Scott Hans talking instead. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll watch Jeff Cavins instead of, <laughs> instead of Rugrats or SpongeBob. You know, um, though I can still quote SpongeBob like a crazy person. But anyway, um, it was uh, it was not something that I was personally living out. Sure. You know, I remember mom was praying uh, with us before school every morning, and we would always pray the St. Michael prayer. I remember my dad was an air traffic controller throughout my life uh, at Stanford Tower here in Louisville, and he would have the night shift. So my mom would uh, kind of barricade the door because, you know, it was just me and the kids, yeah. and dad was at work, and we'd s sleep with mom, and we would pray a rosary together. I remember a lot of these things being things that I would do, but it was more because of my family. You know, uh, my grandma taught me First Communion. She was my First Communion teacher. Mm -hmm. She was my vacation Bible school teacher, and she eventually became my confirmation sponsor. I would say my faith personally lived began really to come to a head with confirmation onward. Hmm. And that's, I think, really where the uh, the visceral details of my family story and my personal story kind of start to uh, make sense. And it kind of starts from that point right. forward. Um, but it's, a, it's an incredible journey that I don't think I could have ever received if I hadn't been open enough to the grace of the Holy Spirit that I received on my confirmation onward. Uh, it says a lot also in about the importance of parents and how they raise their children in the faith just as a point of encouragement. I mean, we can never ensure, you know, that our children are going to follow the faith, but how important that is to to at least steep them in it. Yes, and I, and I have to say this, because I don't want it to think that we were just like constantly, you know, faithful, prayerful, Catholic, doing our thing all the time. I mean, yeah, I went to church every Sunday. I. 
I, you know, we did daily prayer, things like that in the home. Um, but I was in Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. I did the Pinewood Derby every year, and I was heartbroken when I didn't win first place, and my brother beat me, you know, one year and got the trophy, and he went on to win uh, district. And he's younger than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's that's younger that's than me. It was even more awful, that. right? Do you still um, have your cars? Yeah, I do still have my Pinewood Derby it's cars. On. Yep. It's on. Oh, yeah. I was number my one dad, in Ohio. My dad <laughs> oh my has gosh. a track from our old Cub Scout pack. We could totally do this. No. Number one in Ohio is, is a lot of... <laughs> Competition. It is a lot of competition. Amongst the Southern Baptists. Okay. <laughs> well, Pinewood Derby was really awesome. I remember collecting all my trophies. I had on my, my dresser trophies like Pinewood Derby and baseball, you know, because yeah. I played baseball since I was little. I mean, it's five, six, seven years old. Dad didn't like t ball, he just wanted to go right to machine pitch. <laughs> But he coached me um, and my brother. That's such a funny detail. Um, I don't I know. know why I thought that was so funny. <laughs> no. Nah, you're well, too. <laughs> well, think about it. When you see kids on the t-ball field, most of the kids pit. are just picking grass or playing with their glove or watching butterflies. It's so kind of manly. Hilarious. I know, right? No, but my dad was coaching us and, um, you know, Blue Lick ball field. And then we moved to Oklahoma Little League uh, when they first opened uh, after they built the new field. Um, my wife actually got to also play on the older field because we started a blue lick, but it was uh, it was cool to, you know, grow up with a lot of kids who I still know today that yeah. played in the neighborhood. There's a lot of travel ball today that a lot of, you know, old school coaches today say it's just ruining sports in mm. general. All the travel ball means you don't get to grow up with kids that you really played with mm -hmm. and had a good time with. And the Did only- Did you know your wife during that time? Or did you all meet much later? I did, actually, but I would have never, ever thought that, that she would have been my wife, nor would she have thought I would be her husband, right? Yeah. And that's its own <laughs> it's its own story yeah. in, its, in its way. But, uh, but you know, her, uh, her uh, uncle actually coached me in All-Stars oh, one wow. year. Okay. Uh, so there's a picture of me and her cousin and his dad in the same shot in the All-Star team at Oklahoma. So things like that are just really, yeah. really cool to, to be able to have. But what I, I say this because this is the human side. You know, it's not the spiritual life, the life of being a Catholic or a Christian is really about being a, a fully human and fully alive person. You know, who enjoys normal things like sports and recreation and fun and Pinewood Derby, you know, and SpongeBob, and in, right? And in the place that, that you're called to be in your life, like, the, you know, the the contemplative monk is called to be doing that. It, like, right, in the, the state of life, yeah, but exactly. that doesn't mean that somebody in a different state of life who is enjoying the Pinewood Derby and so forth <laughs> exactly. is not also fulfilling their vocation and living a good and holy life. Right, right, it's all, it's all in where does God call you and how can you integrate these normal, ordinary experiences in a way that allows those same experiences to shine because of your prayer life, because of your ability to recognize that those things aren't God. Right. Those things aren't heaven. Those things aren't your ultimate happiness. And by me being a kid putting my trophies on my shelf, there was a, the beginnings of what could have become this unhealthy, what you basically call idolatry sure. that we see today. And God knew what he would need to do to kind of break me of that, right. transform me in many ways. Yeah, and not your, to say I'm perfect. brother beat you in the Pinewood Derby. Yeah, 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 it started with my brother beating me in the Pinewood Derby, right, exactly. So, this is the uh, first time I've ever been glad I didn't have a brother. Oh yeah. my gosh. So, so um, at this point, our 
dear fellow co-host Eric Huff, uh, I think, has got to leave. And my understanding of this is because he had something he had to do, so we're going to be missing you for the last bit of the episode. We are. I I'm prefer so to sad. think again is because you ruined my intro joke today. <laughs> we kicked him <laughs> out. Actually, this is yeah, what's yeah, really exactly. halfway through. So, <laughs> I guess I'll leave in shame here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, thanks for being here, Eric. We'll take a short break while we uh, let Eric shamefully show himself out the door, and we'll be back in a few minutes with more of John Soul. Hey everyone, another sponsor for today's episode is the Cathedral of the Assumption in the heart of downtown Louisville, Kentucky. It is the spiritual center of parish and family life and is a historic treasure for the Catholic Church in America. Take a tour or consider visiting for Mass. Check them out at cathedraloftheassumption.org. Welcome back to Spirit Inspire. We've been talking today with John Soule. And uh, John, you've told us a little bit about your family background, uh, things that had a big impact on you in your childhood. And I think you got us up to about your early teens, a little before starting high school. And in the very first part of the episode today, you were mentioning about the theology of the body, now working for the Family Renewal Project. So this is kind of a two-part question for you. Sure. Um, one is, when did you first hear about theology of the body? And then secondly, were there any events then or, or earlier in your life which made you interested in that or more open or receptive to the theology of the body that kind of influenced your response? Yeah, it was a um, truly a moment of absolute grace in my life because, and again, it flows from the sacraments. You know, I had received baptism when I was a kid, a guardian angel as, as a baby. Uh, first communion uh, when I was eight in 99, the same year my parents got married in the church. So there's the sacraments of yeah. holy matrimony as well. 2005, I was confirmed in the church and uh, it was Easter vigil, 2005, and it happened to be at my parish, St. Luke, which is pretty uncommon. Normally it's at the cathedral with the bishop. Well, Archbishop Kelly at the time was uh, getting sicker and he actually passed away just a few years later. Um, and so our pastor who had guided us through the closing of the school and those initial wounds, the near closing of the parish, the fire, the rebuilding, um, as well as the abuse scandal that broke in 2002, mm -hmm. uh, he actually was the one who was given permission to con confirm us. And that was a really cool experience. Yeah. Um, he happened to pass away a couple of years later as well, right around the same time as Archbishop Kelly, which was crazy to me, like this moment, like the, this was the years I actually entered high school. So there was this feeling of transition that was taking place in my life that was bigger than just being a teenager, yeah. right? Uh, especially because a week after my confirmation, John Paul II himself died, mm. a week to the day. I will never forget that. And it was this feeling of the world is ending, you yeah. know, uh, everything's falling apart. And I feel like that's pretty consistent theme throughout your whole life. Everyone feels like the world is yeah. ending, everything's falling apart. And there's this tendency, uh, perhaps a, a temptation even, to remain hopeless, jaded, cynical. Yeah. And for some reason, God said, no, I want you to be hopeful and to feel that what is happening around you actually is instilling within you a sense of great purpose and reason 
behind it. It's not random coincidences. Now, could I have named it as divine providence at the time? No, not fully. Right. Um, but I was certainly aware that I was caught up in what I consider now a grand adventure, yeah. a real compelling story that I was actually a character in. Uh, not in a way that I am well, the- Well, you are a character. Yes, I'm a, I am a <laughs> yeah. character, but I'm not the central character. Right. And I think that's one of the things, I heard Bishop Robert Barron actually say this. He calls it the ego drama or the theodrama. The ego drama is really where you have a play and you're the main character and it all revolves around what you want to do. And it's kind of boring and drab. No one wants yeah. to hear about that. But when you have a theodrama, suddenly you are a very important character mm -hmm. in a massively large story that you still remain unrepeatable, indispensable, and irreplaceable. And that's a mystery. That's a miracle. And I felt that at 15, 14, 15 years old. One other option there is no drama. So there's well, ego drama. You're right. There's <laughs> uh, theodrama. Total indifference, and there ignorance. Some, and you know, just sort of nihilistic and, and uh, miserable people fi find there is no narrative. And yeah. I found myself there, you know, we had my story on the show and, yeah. um, you know, and that that there's a hopelessness to that side of things too. So, to to be engaged as you were, and to know that you're a piece of this story that that God is telling, um, I think it does you know just help keep you on track, um, and and being able to contextualize yourself and realize you have a part to play. Yes, it's not the you're not the lead, uh, but okay. you are an important. Um, okay character in in the story of salvation uh, and that each person is and should you step into your role freely not as a, a written character uh, but as a, a free will creature should you step into that role well the the theodrama is going to be an even better story yeah. um, and and you get to contribute to that uh, is really cool yeah interesting on that point and, and John you've used uh, before the phrase the sacredness of the story or something along those those lines of how God works in our story to create you know, something amazing. And what you were saying, Brian, reminds me of my favorite books, The Lord of the Rings. Oh, <laughs> And perfect. there is so much <laughs> yes. theological depth in those books. But this is something I never thought about before until this precise moment, is that idea of the ego drama versus the theodrama. Um, it is actually more exciting, I think you were saying, when you're not the lead character, mm. right, in your own mind. And so it made me think of the Lord of the Rings, and it's really fascinating that Tolkien has the smallest characters doing the most important mm. things, right? The hobbits, and not just even the obvious Frodo, for example. But none of them actually think they're important. Sam does not think he's important in the slightest, right? right. Sam is like the, the stereotype of humility, like mm. in a good way. And even Merry and Pippin, you know, they perform a couple of the greatest actions that are so profoundly consequential, but they're the smallest people. Um, I, that was just very interesting to me. And then to think of the sacredness of the story of how even a fictional story like that can have something very sacred that, that really teaches us. It, it, it had a deep impact on me. You know, I yeah. remember when the movies were coming out and I was 12, 13 years old and going to see The Return of the King, the yeah. last of the great trilogy was 
as memorable to me as watching The Passion of the Christ that same year. I think they came out within a year of each other. Probably. Um, and these also played a formative role in my ability to understand my faith, to connect the dots between the ultimate conquering of evil that all movies and stories are trying to get at and the ultimate sacrifice, death and resurrection of Christ. And Tolkien actually, it's really interesting because when Frodo and Sam get into mortar, he actually has an internal discussion about story in the book. I don't know if you remember this or not, um, but Sam is talking to Frodo and he's talking about, you know, the stories you loved when you were a kid. And then he kind of poses this question of imagine sort of like what it'd be like if we were in a story or a story was told about you. And um, yes, it, yes. It, so he kind of weaves the concept of the story into the story and the characters are sort of questioning their role in the story and how it's going to end, which is, is really beautiful. Well, I think of it like a spiral, you know, it's and this is the thought of John Paul II. You know, a lot of philosophers and theologians will will consider a problem and then work their way philosophically till they solve the problem from right. point A to point Z. And then they'll explain what they did. Whereas John Paul II will actually begin visiting a problem by circling around it, by talking mm -hmm. about the concepts that surrounded the context, the purpose. Um, and he does so in a way that he covers a lot of ground and then he does it again, but he goes deeper. And then he does it again and he gets deeper and deeper. And each time we do it, you learn a little bit more, you understand it more deeply. So it's not so much about reaching a conclusion as it is reaching a heart, the heart and the, mm -hmm. the, the center of it. Yes. And but speaking yes. of John Paul II, and kind of getting back to this, so when you when did you hear first hear about the theology? Here it is. So 2005, he dies. And right. in 2007, so now I'm two years later in high school, I was invited to go to a couple youth conferences, okay. and these were, this is kind of what brought my faith back to life from my confirmation, because, you know, entering high school is rough for yep. every person, no matter jock or nerd or whatever. And I was, I would consider the nerd. My friends were like um, my grades and my teachers. It was pretty sad, but anyway, um, <laughs> no, not really. I eventually made friends. It was good. <laughs> I ended up carrying a briefcase and uh, uh, yeah, that'll get time. you a lot of friends. Yeah, it was yeah. right. No, um, I, <laughs> I grew in confidence. <laughs> I grew in confidence though by halfway through high school uh, to the point where I decided after these powerful conferences, I was going to stand up for my faith. Sure. And I remember a teacher uh, at the sales in a Catholic high school, you know, powerful place of formation and um, ability to pray, ability to be Catholic, um, but also the, the standard temptations of academics and athletics that can become extreme, right? And the academic side in this regard played out in a powerful debate. And this debate was about things that had to do with marriage and family. Sure. And it was very, uh, very challenging. It's early 2000s, right? Uh, 2007. Okay. This was the year, late 2007. And I remember my teacher allowing us to pick the debate. And, I, and this was an honors class. And I remember half my class, most who would become valedictorians and beyond, were very much opposed to the thought of John Paul II, the thought of the church. And most of it was because they they just lacked this deeper conversation about what it means to be human. Sure. Um, 
and how to live a life that brings that happiness in a way that looks at the church as not a list of rules and prohibitions or archaic institutions, but as the very lifestyle uh, that you should desire that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I saw many of my classmates fall to the cultural mentality of whatever feels good in the moment, do it. You know, I think therefore I am, which is Rene Descartes. Feel, I feel therefore I am. Yes, and, and it becomes <laughs> so that's confusing. That's where we are now. Exactly. Yes, yeah. it's very confusing. It's very uh, tense today. And even 15 years ago, which, I was feeling that tension with my classmates. Which I would say is really putting Descartes before the horse. Ha, 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 Descartes before the horse. You're trying to be Eric and it's not working. What essentially became Rene Descartes' adage is really, I think, therefore, I am whatever I think I am. And it gets very hard you yep. know, to, to develop relationships, to invite people into the heart of discipleship, of following Jesus, because Jesus really invites us to come to terms with our deepest identity. Yeah. Who am I really? What is my real purpose? Um, what lifestyle will actually lead me to the happiness my heart most deeply longs for? And when I saw many of my friends not understanding that, not speaking this language, uh, and not knowing the language myself. You know, I was probably using a lot of words, jargon, ideas, concepts that were probably a little off-putting, unhealthy, um, built more walls with some sure. of my friends than built bridges. And um, especially when, when many of the guys were a little bit, on my side of the debate, were a little bit prejudiced mm. or asleep, <laughs> uh, I found myself persecuted for the first real time in my life. And so I was like, I've got to get answers. I've got to figure out how to address this sure. stuff. Mm. And so I actually started um, studying theology of the body and not because I knew about it, but because somebody handed me a book. Mm. And who did? My mom. And it comes from the family. Now, you know? let me ask you this. Did she hand you the actual... No, no. Okay, Here, 15, 16-year-old yes, exactly. John, here's a deep theological text to wade Did she by any chance through. hand you Theology of the Body for Beginners by Christopher West? No. Oh, that was not even that. that was what I read. Not so. even that. Uh, and, I, and the phrase Theology of the Body wasn't even in my mind mm -hmm. when I first started searching. It was just, I've got to get answers to the church's position on sex, marriage, sure. everything that yeah. you can imagine. And sure enough, what book do I stumble upon but Christopher West's book called The Good News About Sex and Marriage. Okay, but it was Christopher West though. So. It was yes. Christopher West. <laughs> the first um, I read was uh, the Theology of the Body for Beginners by Christopher West. Yes. And it, 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 powerful. it, it was very powerful. It had a tremendous impact on, on helping with my understanding of some of these matters. And then so some years later, I got a copy of the actual talks, John Paul mm. II. And I regret to say that I have not read it. It's um, hard. It's hard. And I, several times I've begun, and, and I've always fancied myself as a person with a reasonable vocabulary, but when you have to go to the, the dictionary every That was sentence. always like me reading Lord of the Rings. It was hard to get through initially, but yes. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, profound stuff, but I think we are all really grateful for people like Christopher West who have taken that and distilled it into more laity-friendly, 
you know. Yes, the, and, the I, and I want to mention this with a caveat because the book answered all my questions in many ways, in deep ways. Not that I didn't have more questions because of those answers, but it gave me this deep sense of, okay, it's not crazy. Yep. The church isn't outdated, archaic, uh, against the human person. Right. They actually are more for the human person than the cultural mentality right. is, right? Um, they want us to really be happy. Yep. And that's really what I was looking for. I just wanted to be happy. And I was rubbing up against problems and behaviors and my own failures as a person at this time in my life as well. In 16, 17 years old, you think of the common teenager today, even 50 years ago, there's some level of regret jadedness, frustration, feeling misunderstood sure. that some people can allow to capture their entire life mm. unless they find healing. And so I was seeking healing and restoration during this time in my life as much as I was seeking the ability to debate my friends, right? Because sure. uh, you have to know this is also the time the Facebook debates were coming out. Right? <laughs> Everyone was falling into debating each other. And I read a second book and it was called Relativism as Religion. Mm. And it opened my eyes to the world's attitude toward the truth. Yes. And it was this mentality of whatever is true for you is good. It doesn't have to be true for me. I can believe what I want to believe as long as we are fine with each other. This sense of tolerance and coexisting. Unless your beliefs go against mine. Unless your beliefs go against mine. And then we see Benedict's phrase, the dictatorship of relativism. Yes, and it, and it can really put a stranglehold on relationships, on conversation, on healthy debate and sure. dialogue. You can't accompany people. You can't walk with people when they're not even willing to listen, to respect you, because we're afraid of doing anything. Uh, and so this attitude of relativism helped me understand that we have to really recognize the truth of things. Absolute truth is real, mm -hmm. just like relative truth. You know, there are relative subjective Absolutely. things. Like, I like broccoli, you don't. Okay, well, get off my case. <laughs> I dude. do like broccoli, right? how dare you? Yeah, okay, well, there you go. Imply um, otherwise. And it would be weird for you to go to war with Isaac's country if they don't like broccoli. Correct. Like, that would be right. the, the butter yeah. battle book. Exactly. Uh, it's, <laughs> that's exactly what came to mind. Uh, that's really funny. Um, but, but there are, you know, times to go to war, like genocide, yes. uh, or when you're attacked, or something like that, that would be an encroachment on the objective truth of what is good and real. What, the I way think. I would say this to my kids real quick, because yeah. um, people, I, you know, we have a relatively broad audience, uh, sure. um, and so I don't know, I wanna make sure that everybody understands what we're talking about when we're throwing around the word relativism, which you know, you've summarized pretty well in that you know, it's this, uh, what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is what's true for you. Um, and like you said, it's sorta, of, you know, I got lost a little bit, which is why I'm saying this. In sure. that like, so people say that, but then there are these fights about, well, but actually, what's true for you should be what's true for me right. at the same time. And there's this weird disconnect and this co almost cognitive dissonance um, where you hold these two things at the same time. You know, um, you shouldn't tell other people what to do in the bedroom, uh, but if you're telling people what to do in the bedroom, 
that's this thing that I don't agree with. Yeah, and that's you know. objectively wrong. Somewhere. Yes, yeah. exactly. Then that's objectively wrong. And so, you know, I would talk to the kids about, because when you're in the idea realm, um, it's maybe a little harder to understand. But like in the physical realm, it's not. Like if I punch someone in the nose, their nose is going to bleed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some objective reality that we share. And so then we have to have ideas about whether we should punch people in noses or not. Um, <laughs> right, and, uh, right. and so that uh, sometimes it's hard to bridge between the ideas and the um, and the physical right. reality, which is part of what theology of the body is all yes. about. Yeah. Yes, and and so this is what exposed me to the to the to the treasure trove of the Catholic faith in a way that helped me understand its teachings on sex, on marriage, on all the things that we're facing today in the culture so that I could let my heart be literally catch on fire. And so it goes back to that mentality, that, that childhood experience of the fire. My heart was burning within me. I was like, finally, someone is speaking sense. It's yeah. giving me the, the nourishment, the food, the, the spiritual aid I was longing for to help me live a life of happiness. Mm-hmm. Because boy, was I in a desert. I mean, teenage years, especially at the dawn of the technological revolution with the internet and social media coming out, it was it was very, very difficult. And yeah. we all know that, right? Yeah. We've all lived it, everyone at home. And so for me to stumble onto those two books to help me realize there is an absolute truth in the midst of my subjective experiences, and that absolute truth is ultimately the personhood of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. in relationship with him, knowing him in his love, in so his So what mercy. makes that connection? Because you've got these two books, you've got Theology of the Body, or uh, The Good News About Sex and Marriage, you've got a book on relativism, which I forget the title. Relativism as Religion. Okay, what, what, what brings it, is it uh, Good News About Sex and Marriage, what brings it to the person of Christ for you in, the, in those high school years? Because that's what, like, I hear the intellectual conversion happening, and I hear the heart set afire by wanting to share the truth. But like, have you started to pray at this point? Like, where where's that where's that hook happening where you're like, and all of this <laughs> truth is rooted in Christ? Right. I think it was 2006, seven when I really went to one of the hardest confessions of my life, mm. where I really opened up about things I had been through, things that I had done, things that I had felt. And that's when I was affirmed by the priest saying, this is, this is good, John. It's a mature thing to mm-hmm. say these things in confession out loud and to trust time, in the mercy of God. Last time we talked with you about confession in a previous segment, it was oh, yeah, something it you was, didn't want to do. didn't want to do. It was so awkward. Sudden, I didn't know how to. So something, something changed there. Yeah, it was because it went beyond just hitting my brother over a fight or like my mom's first confession she told me when she was a kid was, <laughs> I stole a green bean. You know, I mean, the, these childhood, right, the priest must have been laughing to themselves in the confession. Um, but this, this, it went from beyond just these the, these pithy sins that children feel a little bit of remorse to, to something I can't talk to anybody. Mm. I feel awful mm. about myself, about other people. I feel like I'll never be my true self. I'll never be happy uh, because you cross boundaries. You make right. mistakes. You do things you wish you had not done, mm. you know? Um, and 
that's its own episode, I would say, one day, perhaps, God willing. Because it goes to the sacredness of the story, the details that you share at the right time. But uh, it was confession that helped me begin to really recognize that Jesus did love me Mm -hmm. and that it was an objective, absolute truth that he loved me and he was carrying me through this. But there's a treasure there and a gift your parents gave you by taking you to all those confessions that you fought against. Yes. Because I, I did the same things, you know, in or at least the same category at the same age. And I it never, it never even crossed my mind to go to confession. So for hmm. that to be a habit, even <laughs> if you hadn't taken it seriously before, you hadn't wanted to do it before, for that to be this place that you think about, that's a grace and a gift. It is. It's a miracle. If it's I a can, miracle. If I can jump in on that, that makes me think of two stories from my experience. One, um, you know, I was not raised Catholic. And so confession wasn't even a possibility. I mean, let alone that I basically had never heard about it for most of my life. You know, it wouldn't even cross my mind. And from, I, I would say, uh, much of my life, I suffered from certain psychological imbalances, which would also lead me to anxiety, depression, obsession, you know, and the like. And so I too had many things, uh, you know, childhood, teens and so forth that I struggled with and many failures, many sins of my own. And then you, you deal with the sense of guilt, but not just guilt. You deal with a sense of like, I have messed this up and I can't fix it, right? Yes. This sort of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Boy. Um, that at times, I think, is almost worse than the immediate emotional sense of guilt. Like, mm-hmm. man, I screw up. I feel really bad about this. But rather that sense of, you know, I've altered the course of my life. And I irredeemable. Can't, I, it's irredeemable. Yeah, That's yeah, what right. it felt. That's what it was. And it was this sense of irredeemable hopelessness. I, my options were limited. Right. And of course, as a Protestant, I believed in praying, asking God for forgiveness and asking God for help. And I would just want to say this because I think there's a little bit of an unfortunate debate that can happen between Catholics and Protestants here. Right. The 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 Catholic may say to the Protestant, you know, for whatever reasons, the confession, confessional bit is real. uh, It's true. You need to do that. And then the Protestant might say, no, I can go directly to God. But there's a little bit of a a potential disconnect here in the fact that it is God who forgives us. He technically forgives us before we ask for that forgiveness, (laughs) right? And when we pray to God, he is certainly loving and forgiving. But we also believe that the absolution happens in the confessional and that Jesus instituted that for a reason. And one of those reasons is actually (laughs) psychological. Absolute truth. And so there is some truth to be found here on both sides of that debate. And so as a child, when I would I would pray and and I needed to I needed to feel better. So like I think I wanted tears. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to have an experience to make me feel assured of God's forgiveness, feel better about things, pray, God, please forgive me, please forgive me. I'm gonna do better next time. You know, and you're praying, you, you're all kind of just bent out of shape. You're you're tortured inside. And what is interesting to me now, looking back at that, is God in eternity had already forgiven me. It didn't mean I'd received the absolution. Mind you, that's key. 
That doesn't mean that my soul was cleansed or okay. But God is a loving, merciful God and forgiven me, right? But that is very different than the experience one receives when you walk out of the confessional because you know, you absolutely know, I spoke this out to a qualified representative who with the authority of Christ himself absolved me of my sins. And in those childhood moments, before I became Catholic, I can think of my teens. Um, this is personal, but I'm just going to share this on air. This is your story, John, not mine. I'm sorry I'm talking, but I, I do. I think <laughs> go, it's so important. Go on. Yeah. Our story this. is so deep, man. And, and our it spans beyond Well, and this time. is the fun. I kind of said that on my episode when I was sharing my testimony for the first time with a in dialogue rather than monologue. Right. It's completely different it. for John to hear this story triggered by his story Which and, and that, you know, union and communion, uh, like, exactly. you know, that's, that's what's so special about being in Christ and, and being in fellowship. So this wait, is about story, bringing yeah. healing to our family. Our I'm telling is, you. Our stories affect each other. So tell us, uh, before, yes. before you lose your nerve. So, yeah, so, <laughs> right. no, so I was 19 and I had, I had just got my first apartment, uh, and, this will come up probably in my story at some point. Sure. Um, and I had done that. It, it, part of the reason I had done that was because I was sort of seeking converting to the Catholic Church. But uh, when I tell my story, you'll hear that I was, that wasn't going to sit too well with my family. And I was frankly being a coward, right? So I thought if I moved out and got my own apartment, I'd have more freedom to go and pursue God, you know, or what I believe was God's truth for me. And I, I had. I had seen some things in print form prior to this, but first or second day in my apartment, or very early on, and I had gotten a little TV, I move into my apartment really with this goal of pursuing God. And in a very short time, I was like, hmm, I got freedom. I can do whatever I want. And what did I do? I went to my local blockbuster or whatever and rented an adult movie, which I'd never seen before. And after that, the guilt I felt was just absolutely overwhelming. And of course, I'd also been raised in, uh, say, in this this background, and and with friends to whom witness and the spoken word was very important. Mm. And this is kind of embarrassing looking back, but I remember when I took that movie back, I couldn't just drop it off. It was kind of like the self-imposed guilt thing. I had to go and in a very embarrassed way, informed the clerk that I was ashamed and I should never have checked this out right. It was a very messed up experience. But I had a desire a, to redeem something yeah. that seemed irredeemable. But I, I had know. a friend. There is the power in, in that, though. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, that's a twisted version of it. And this speaks, the, I have to say this, Isaac. The this fact that speaks, I thought I had to do that right. was maybe exactly. issue. It's no, it's the, definitely it, twisted. It speaks to this what you refer to as this Protestant idea of confession, of you had to say it out loud physically to another person. And it's not that I can say it to God and get forgiveness whenever I want. There is still this desire to bodily, in your physical way, communicate out loud what you've done to another human being to receive some sense of absolution, even if it's not necessarily sacramental, given by Christ through the ordained priest. 
there's still a healing to be had from that that can lead people toward the treasure of the Catholic faith. And that is right? precisely the point. And that's what you were doing. Because I made a phone call to a friend of mine in the youth group I was part of. It was a year or two older than me. His name was uh, was Mark Mark Yoder. Shout out to him if he ever watches this. Fantastic person. And he came over to my apartment just like the next day. And I sat down and confessed to him what I had done. And he prayed with me. Um, and that was so helpful to me. And so even though you can have this sort of theology that says you don't need to go to confession and go straight to God, there is something psychologically in the hearts of all of us that need to speak that out. And so today I can still feel guilt, but that sense of I've screwed my life up forever, that goes away because of confession. We, we should, at a healthy level, still, I think, feel guilt when we have done something we ought not to do. But it is knowing that when I go into the confessional, there's this certainty, this absolute certainty, that you walk out of there a new man. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the story you were writing doesn't have to finish the way it looks like it was going to. It is really and truly rewritten in that space. And I cannot help but think what a gift this is to each of us. What a gift that those of us who have children can give to our children, those of us who were not raised with that, to know that the solution is going to be found there. A and fire starting in the confessional. That, that this comes <laughs> full story to what you were telling us about. One of your earliest, most impactful memories was your church being set on fire by a fire starting in the confessional. Yes. Yeah. It truly is yeah. grace. I don't know. I didn't uh, mean to override your story. You but that didn't. might be a good point to pause, actually. And Yeah, let's pause for yeah. the next segment. That's Yeah, fine. take a short break, and we'll be back in a little bit with more from John Soule. Thanks for watching Spirit Inspired. Hey, everyone. Our final sponsor today is ReCatholic. ReCatholic has lots of treasures on their site, including confession cards with a saint, a prayer, and a QR code for further resources that priests can use in the confessional to help lead their parishioners deeper into their faith. Consider buying some cards for your priest at recatholic.org or ccards.org. Hello and welcome back to Spirit Inspire. I'm your host today, Isaac Fox, and we have been chatting today with our co-host, John Soule, and we have our other co-host, Brian Kane, with us. Eric Huff, unfortunately, had to depart and, I guess, attend to other matters. So it's down <laughs> to the three of us. Yeah. Well, John, I think we've kind of come to the end of our time for today. So sure. before we wrap up, do you, and we'll definitely continue because there's a lot more to your story. We only got a, a very short bit of the way in. But we did get to conversion. We I mean, did get to conversion. A genuine conversion. Yeah, and and that's, that's, what, that's kind of where we've landed with all of us. I, I think, think so, was. yeah. Well, except for me. I, I kind of You got the full with, life. No, we weren't, I, well, we weren't dead I, that I did, episode. Con- <laughs> I did conversion and then turning my back on it. Ah, so it was kind of a dark place. You've got then. double conversion. Yeah, I got okay. double conversion. So you oh, left him right. on a, yours was the tragedy of yes. the first four episodes. Well, if you think of <laughs> being given second chances, I definitely was. Okay. But I would say that going back again to my first comment today about my life as a chart with lists of events and numbers, I think at this point it is roughly 47,367,000 second chances. So. <laughs> yeah, right. That's exactly. usually how it is. To God and that. I will have to say I feel the same, you yeah. know, because while there was that initial 
powerful conversion after the conferences in 2006-7 and stumbling into the debate and the good news about sex and marriage, the relativism as religion, really understanding the faith and wanting to get my answers, boy, did I have a long way to go. I hadn't even gotten to college yet. I hadn't really understood what theology of the body could do for me Mm. or even what being open to God and learning how to pray without someone else praying with me or for me even felt like. That was the journey that would lead me through college, through seminary, back home through youth ministry and everything I do now with Family Renewal Project. Uh, I would not be capable of getting married if I had not stumbled onto theology of the body through the goodness of my mom because of her good friend, uh, Susan Gendron, who actually helped found Family Renewal Project. That is a story for another time, (laughs) as we know. It transcends these episodes in ways that I think is is worth exploring. And I I am so thankful to you, Isaac, for bringing this together um, and to the Holy Spirit, obviously, for giving us a chance to share our stories a little bit about us and to be able to get to know other local and uh, perhaps even one day non-local people in the Archdiocese of Louisville uh, here at the Cathedral of the Assumption, right? It's a powerful story. story. (laughs) That's its own episode too, right? (laughs) How did this happen? That's true. How did we all wind up here? Right. What a gift. It's coming Mm. soon. Well, so John, I'm hearing seminary and then getting married and family renewal project and uh, I think we've definitely got a lot of exciting places to go in our next time we get to sit down and chat with you. So thanks for letting me ask you questions today. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks to all of you for watching Spirit Inspire. Um, You can follow us on our Facebook. You can follow us on YouTube. Give us a like. We're on iTunes, any other place that podcasts are found. Our website is www.spiritandspire.com. And don't forget on uh, YouTube and Facebook to subscribe, to like, to do all of those things, kind of help the algorithms uh, get the gospel message out there on, uh, on the internet land. And if you would like to contact us with any questions or thoughts, our email address is spiritandaspire at aol.com. And the and is spelled out, correct? Not an ampersand? Correct. Spirit yes. and spire yeah. at AOL.com. Yep. Yep. So, thanks for being with us today, and we will see you all next week here on Spirit and Spire. God bless.